Welcome. This is the Lemon Spark Podcast, and I'm so glad you're joining us. And today, my guest speaker is life and business coach Rob Kanzer. He is a certified mediator. He also works in crisis intervention and practices and teaches nonviolent communication to corporate leaders, small businesses, individuals, and couples. And he's been doing this for 39 years. So, Rob, thank you so much for joining me on the Lemon Spark podcast. Barbara, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I am thrilled to get to know you, and I wanted uh, to start, because this is Lemon Spark, with uh, the lemon uh, in your life that led you to where you are today. Thank you, Barbara, and hello, listeners. As I was thinking about Barbara's question, two lemons rose in my consciousness. The childhood lemon of having a mother with a mental illness that she actually did not survive and how that shaped me to become an adult who had a lemon of his own inadvertently getting his girlfriend pregnant at exactly an unplanned wrong moment that threw me into an identity crisis, a financial crisis. And I'm very happy to share how these two lemons worked together. Shall I just say more? Yes, please. I I grew up the eldest of three boys in Weston, Massachusetts. My parents had fought through the anti-Semitic barrier, not just in New York City, that they experienced firsthand, my father getting in fistfights in Brooklyn, uh, but actually moving to the wealthiest town in Massachusetts, known as Weston. Now, when I was a boy of one year of age and we moved into the house, of course, I don't remember that. In fact, I don't remember lemons that were obvious. My lemons were in the background. While I was playing sports, my three best friends in the neighborhood all had tennis courts. One had a swimming pool. One had a horse. One, his father, had built a church organ in their basement and played it like a maestro. So my life, Barbara, as a child, on the face of it, was as charmed as you can possibly imagine. But unbeknownst to me and outside of my conscious awareness, as I grew the eldest of three boys, I came to understand that my mother would have episodes where she would actually lose her ability to process reality. She had what was called acute schizophrenia. And there weren't a lot, there were a few weird incidences, but the lemon was this undercurrent that at any time something could go wrong. So I was forever trying to assuage the conflicts between my brothers. Not that I had any any training as a coach, I was just a kid. And largely it would just be physically separating them if they got into a fight. But unconsciously, I was thinking, if you boys could just communicate with compassion with each other, it won't upset mom. And mommy won't have to go away. Because mommy had had to go away many times in those days for what was called a rest. It was never spoken out loud that where she was going to was the mental hospital. We lived in an era in the 50s and 60s of 
hush-hush politeness and euphemisms. But as a child and as a human being who is gifted with not just being able to play sports and be a co-captain of my soccer team, I was also gifted in these sensitive realms of picking up on some perturbance in the field. But as a child, I didn't have skill as a communicator. Well, one day when I was in junior high on June 5th, 1969, there was a call. Rob Kanzer and Todd Nelson, please report to the principal's office. I don't know what's going on. And nothing was explained to me. I was just simply told that something had happened to my mom and I needed to go home with Todd, my best friend, who was the drummer in our little rock and roll band. And I didn't think much of it. I thought, oh, maybe mom had to go for a rest again. And this is just the way it goes. But when I got to Todd's house, his mother said, Rob, some things have happened and I can't really tell you anything more. And then I started to worry. It's like, oh, maybe this is something different than mom just going away for a rest. Finally, she gave me a ride home. And when I got there, my father's car during the day was parked in the driveway. Now, my father's an advertising executive on Newbury Street. And what's he doing home? What are all these other cars doing here? It was very emotional, as you can imagine. As my worst fears became realized, my father brought us up to the bedroom and I never saw my father cry. His nose became a, right, a bright red bulb. His whole face started to shake. His whole body started to shake. And he said, mom is dead. And we burst out crying. Of course, we're just kids. And he burst out crying and it was horrible. I, wanted, I remember wanting to pick up the chair and throw it through the window. Now, this was a very long time ago. I was 13 years old. I'm now almost 65. And I don't know how this happened, but I was able to grieve the loss of my mother. And somehow I came out of it unscarred. Somehow this horrible event, and by the way, my mother died by suicide so she could get out of her schizophrenic pain. The entire town of Weston knew what happened. I was the only kid, except for my two younger brothers, because my father had told us that she had died of a heart attack because the doctor said, don't tell your children what actually happened because sometimes children experiment with committing suicide thinking that that will reunite them with their parent, which of course scared the bejesus out of my father. But it also reinforced not telling the truth on top of these undercurrents. So as you can imagine, being the son of a professional speaker, a professional advertising executive, driven to be articulate and bring out the business needs and meet them in the advertising world, plus being very frightened that he would inadvertently damage his sons was even more undercurrent. So always an undercurrent of not quite telling the truth and people not quite being free to express themselves. So fast forward to living on my own 
My second lemon was when I was a carefree, hippy-dippy guy in Cambridge, long hair, going to a dance. I don't know if you remember the story or the movie Tuesdays with Maury. Did you ever? Oh, I read the book. Yeah. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember in the book, there was a very short acknowledgement of what Maury used to do on Wednesday nights, which was to dance in this kind of hippy-dippy place called Dance Free. So I actually was one of those hippy-dippy guys. I actually was dancing each week with a bunch of hippy-dippy free-spirited people, including Maury. In that setting, there was a very attractive woman, we were in our 20s, who I lusted after and started to become intimate with. She would soon become my girlfriend. That was in April. And in September, we had moved in to live with each other way too fast. And what happened? She got pregnant. And then suddenly, my world started to cascade. No longer could I be the hippy-dippy carefree guy having three-hour cappuccino walking to Harvard Square. Now I was going to be a father, and I better be responsible. To talk about the have-tos. Mm -hmm. I put a huge have-to. And my father, may he rest in peace, rejected the notion. Get away from her. It's not your fault. You owe nothing to whoever this child is. And this created a fantastic rift in my family because I opted just the other direction. I said, no, I don't know how, but I'm going to love this child. And even if his mother and I don't get along, we're still going to figure it out. Now, what was the spark that came out of these two lemons? Great question. <laughs> Shall I tell you? Yes, please. <laughs> the spark of growing up with a sensitivity to the unspoken and the perturbances in the field and the disturbances between people as a youngster and as somebody who went through his own crisis of identity. I was 26. We'll go back to the scene I was telling you about my girlfriend. So while I was being exhorted by my father to leave the relationship, I went in exactly the opposite direction and I had no money, no money. What was I going to do? I had just met Marshall Rosenberg. I had just had a transformative experience where I learned nonviolent communication and I was going to teach it. And indeed, I started to have some gigs, but I didn't have enough gigs to raise a kid. So I started delivering newspapers early in the morning, kind of like you, Barbara. I took on another project and another project and another project. That one newspaper route drove me to build a small empire of newspaper routes in and around Massachusetts to 150 different towns with 40 different publishers. I, uh, before I knew what had happened, this incessant drive that I will win, I will figure out a way to make money and have my coaching business too, led me to build a business with 20 other people that I was able to sell for three quarters of a million dollars and become financially independent and return to my coaching business. Wow, that's incredible. So you, the business was paper route? So started off as one little paper route in Cambridge with USA Today. And this was the era of perfect timing because it's just when free newspapers 
started to come into being. And when the publishers found out how neurotic and driven I was to do things perfectly, they said, where have you been? We want your company to distribute our papers. We've never had them professionally done. We don't know anything about these 150 towns. Can you be our marketing and distribution arm for our company? And I had 40 companies say that to me. They could see how ultra serious I was about doing a good job. So it was a very glorified way of saying newspaper delivery. That's incredible. And, and you just thought about it as you were delivering the papers for the one route, you figured out how yes. this might turn into a, a bigger enterprise? Two things happened. The first thing that happened was after about six weeks of delivering USA Today, I went from telling myself a story that I'm a schnook and I'm no good. I wasted my education. I'm throwing my life away. Look at me. I'm delivering newspapers. I'm just about as low as you can go. After about six weeks of getting that paycheck every week in my mailbox from USA Today, the sixth time I took it out of the mailbox, I changed my story. I am not a lowly newspaper boy. I am an independent businessman. And I went back to them and I said, you're going to pay me 40% more money because I'm the most reliable driver you have. And I was right about that. They did give me a raise. And then to answer your second question, as I was out on the route driving, I saw all these other free newspapers. And I said to myself, what if I delivered those newspapers at the same time I'm doing this one route? I did a calculation. It'll take me 40 to 60% more time, but I'll make three times the amount of profit. And I was right. And before I knew it, I was making money hand over fist. And I had to learn the art of delegating to other people people who are not gonna be a driven perfectionist like me, but yet I needed a company. I needed professional managers. I needed a warehouse. I needed trucks and vans to do the work. So this, this unraveled over a period of years, of course, but it was out of the desperation where I was telling myself these negative stories. And I said, enough, I am not a lowly newspaper boy. I'm an independent businessman. And almost overnight, I changed my fortune. And it enabled me to have passive income because I hired four managers to run the business for me profitably, I should tell you. Many times I would make more money from the paper business than coaching. But I love coaching. That's my passion. And so it gave me an education on how to coach business people because I was thrown into the fire myself. What kind of coaching were you doing while you were building this distribution company? Was it business or life? Or? No, it wasn't. That, that's a great question because I had, I had a coach uh, help me make a transition. I started by coaching other counselors because I, I had a background as a suicide prevention counselor on the telephone. I worked at a drop-in center in a poor neighborhood in Boston. I got face-to-face -face experience and professional supervision from a, a PhD uh, each week in how to handle crises. So I thought, I'm going to work in the nonprofit world. I want to be surrounded by other people who are doing good work 
compassionate offerings to their clientele. So my first business, my first paying gig was with the Vietnam Veterans Center in Brighton, Massachusetts. I was actually coaching the counselors in how to use nonviolent communication with their clientele. I did some work with nurses at the Newton Wellesley Hospital. And so I had a number of these gigs that were all in the helping field, all in the nonprofit field, until one day I went to a presentation at the Boston Center for Adult Education with a business consultant. I believe her name was Dottie Walters. And she told a similar story about her own child coming into the world and becoming a success. And she pulled me aside at the end of the workshop and she said, Rob, you seem to be somebody that wants to bring a lot of good into the world. I said, oh yes, uh, absolutely. She said, you, you seem to be pretty good at what you do. I said, well, people tell me, you know, people with PhDs. And by that point I hadn't even had my masters. She said, do you really want to change the world? I said, yes, I do. She said, then you need to start coaching people in business. Business people change the world. If you want to see influence happen in the world in a faster way, coach people in the Fortune 500. And when she first said that to me, I was nauseous. I had a very anti-business point of view. I was like, no, business is the problem. They're money grubbing and they're profit oriented and they don't care about people. She said to me, Rob, do you want to make a change in the world or not? So she, she persuaded me and I said, I'm willing to give it a try. And then she said, one more thing, you have to quadruple your prices because otherwise they won't think you're worth it. And when I thought about charging people thousands of dollars per day, Barbara, it took me a year to get up the nerve to say out loud that I would charge $2,000 a day. Once I did, I got this phone call. Hi, is this Rob Kanzer? Yes, it is. Oh, you know, we heard really good recommendations about the work you do. I said, oh, well, you know, thank you very much. You know, we'd like you to come in and, and coach our people in some of the nonviolent communication and compassionate listening. How much do you charge? Now, this was after a year of practicing. I said, $2,000 a day plus expenses. And she said, yeah, that's about what we were thinking of paying. We'll look forward to working with you. I hung up the phone and I screamed. <laughs> I had been putting lemons on my head for a year when the world was trying to give me what I wanted. I did the gig and then you know what happened? What? In a very short period of time after that, I was charging $3,000 a day. And then I was charging $4,500 a day. And it just was mind blowing. Me? Me? What you, me? You're going to pay me all that money? He said, yeah, you're good. You're good at what you do. So I am good at what I do. I am worth it. And now with my coaching business, I don't insist that people pay me that much money. I do what my teacher Rosenberg said, which is, I would appreciate receiving that money if you have it. If this is more than you can afford, Let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it for the growth. I'm in it for sharing love and compassion. And the nonviolent communication model that helps people get out of judging themselves and other people 
and gets them closer to a dialogue of sharing and understanding of the human emotions and human needs. And instead of making demands upon one another, we make requests of one another. And instead of thinking about how to argue with the person, think about how to understand the emotion that the person is feeling, whether it's right or wrong. We've been trained, Barbara, for thousands of years to be moralistic. You're right, I'm wrong. Or you're wrong, I'm right. I'm better than you. She's better looking. This person has more money. Underneath it all, we want love. We want acceptance. We want to contribute to the world. We want to relax into our power. We have great gifts we've been given. We want to give our gifts to the world and to our family. But we get trapped by these conversations about who's right, who's better. And sometimes we talk that way to ourselves. And that's a way to produce stress. And stress is the number one cause of disease. So I like to think that when I teach people some of these communication techniques in my coaching sessions, whether it's corporate leadership or a husband and wife, or even an individual that's been laid off and is feeling depressed, it's all the same. It's all human emotion and human need and having the facility to have a conversation that's non-judgmental and brings people to the point where they can relax into their purpose. Well, that is truly powerful. And your story is really inspirational. And I just wanna reiterate something you said that I just think is a really important take home message for me is you know when you were looking at yourself as a paper boy <laughs> and you flipped the perception, your own perception of who, what you were, and you declared that you were not a paper boy, you were an independent businessman, that that self-perception was sounded like the critical moment that came from the lemons that, you know, you ignited the spark about how you were going to proceed with the rest of your life from those, those lemons and from that ability to recognize you're in control of how you perceive yourself. Barbara, I feel so loved and appreciative of you feeding that back to me. Thank you for saying that. And before we wrap up, I just want to say now, 38 years later, that little baby is a 38-year-old executive at Salesforce who just bought a million-dollar home. And I just get choked up thinking about my son, Abram, and what a fantastic gift he was to me. I chose correctly. Yes, you did. Him. And now I want the whole world to know how happy I am to have Abram here on earth. As I get to be an old man, I know that when my time comes, whenever that might be, I can die in peace. And that is a tremendous gift. Yes, it is. Well, thank you, Rob, for sharing your story. Do you, can you please let us know for the listeners who maybe want to reach out to you, maybe they're intrigued with your coaching business and want to learn more, how can they find you? There's three ways. Uh, first, I'll say my name and then I'll spell it because Mr. Google is a fantastic source. So even if you forget everything I say, just remember my name and Google will find me. So it's Rob Kanzer. That's R-O-B. And my last name is K-A-N for no, 
Z for zebra, E-R. So there's three ways. Rob Kanzer at robkanzer.com or my cell phone, 617-491-8939 or LinkedIn, Rob Kanzer. Not Robert Kanzer, Rob Kanzer. Great. Well, again, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for what you do and for your insight. And I hope that you continue on your journey with joy and purpose. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you everyone for listening. I hope to hear from all of you if you'd like to reach out. And Barbara, I'm looking forward to getting to know you better on our next call. Me too. Take care. Take care.